From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. A ship carrying 23 people sets out from Gulfport, Mississippi, into the Gulf of Mexico in 2019. The expedition is called Journey into Midnight, Light and Life Below the Twilight Zone. The mission to explore the water column in some of its deepest areas. Scientists want to find out what happens to deep sea animals when they don't have one element of life that we take for granted, light. The researchers needed to go deep, more than 3,000 feet down into the darkest depths of the ocean. It's too deep for any human to venture, so they used an underwater camera, dubbed Medusa, and a remotely operated vehicle called the Global Explorer. They also dropped a basic trawl net into the depths. They were sending these devices into the bathypelagic zone, also known as the midnight zone, because sunlight cannot reach it. The only source of light here? Bioluminescence. My guest today was one of the scientists on that expedition. Today, we'll find out what she took from that foray why it changes the way we think about the deep and the function of bioluminescence and what it means for those of us who are terrestrial. Dr. Lorian Swikert, assistant professor in the Department of Biology and Marine Biology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Welcome to Coastline. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. So the name of this expedition is in itself intriguing, Journey into Midnight, Light and Life Below the Twilight Zone. We understand midnight, meaning no sunlight penetrates. What's the twilight zone? The twilight zone is the oceanic zone above the midnight zone. So the midnight zone is everything beneath 1,000 meters, where there's absolutely no sunlight. But from 200 to 1,000 meters, there's very dim sunlight making you think of twilight in the evening. And so it's called the twilight zone. And so there were different studies that that kind of sprang from this expedition. But the, the chief scientist on this trip wrote that... Scientists basically wanted to find out what it means when the limiting rules of blue sunlight no longer apply and animals are free to wander in a larger color space. What does wandering in a larger color space mean? That's a great question. So you think about the need for bioluminescence in the deep sea, which is the natural biological generation of light that animals use for all kinds of processes, like communication, defense, um, or, or startling their prey. And so these animals typically match their bioluminescence to the normal light field that you'd find in the open ocean. That is blue light that makes it to depth. But beyond that, if you no longer have that blue backdrop, that blue backdrop, animals may be able to wander in that space, shifting the color of their bioluminescence potentially to serve other to other functions. Um, that same chief scientist spoke about it as if we follow the world in a given set of rules here on land, following roads through our communities. Imagine those roads no longer existed and we had to find our way or wander our way through the forest to find new ways to survive in our world. In, the, in some ways, animals in the midnight zone have to do that with so few guidelines of how to survive there. 
and so many questions about what we already know about yes. animals in the midnight zone. But before we get there, so just to set the the scene for our listeners, this group of 23 people, crew and scientists, yes. is on board the ship. How, how big was the ship? It was just over 100 feet, a research vessel. And so on this research vessel, of course, you have living quarters, a galley. You also have scientific laboratories. But the majority of the ship is deck space for the equipment that we deployed to study the deep. And do people have separate rooms or do you have to room with someone depending on your rank? What what does that look like? What is living like? You both of those statements are true. So you are assigned a bunk and there are two people to a room in this ship. And in the hierarchy of supervision, um, you get the better places to sleep in the ship. So the, the, the chief scientist had the penthouse, so to speak, and the highest level of the ship. Um, but then as you became a staff scientist or a student or postdoctoral researcher, which was my position at the time, you get perhaps the less desirable bunks of the ship. And so I was um, bunked with the scientific educator on board, who is fantastic. And, and we were great roommates. There are no windows nor no portholes in the deepest part of the ship. And my bunk was in the most um, anterior or frontal part of the ship near the engine room. And so I got to hear that super loud engine roaring all night. Uh, But it didn't bother me at all because I knew I was having a chance of a lifetime to be on this vessel with these scientists. Sure. So all the scientists then are super excited. They've got this equipment that we're going to get into, how unique it is and expensive and kind of difficult to maneuver sometimes. Yes. But... But so you're headed out there into the deepest depths and you're ready to go. You have a plan for your two weeks out there. And then the weather happens. Okay, so a little cheese factor there. But th- this happened the first couple of days. You couldn't you couldn't start the science. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we we left out a golf port, like you said, steamed south and a couple hundred miles. And all of a sudden, this squall kind of came up. And for the first several days of the mission, there were incredibly rough seas. I remember sitting in the galley and looking out of the porthole and seeing very easily eight-foot waves. Now, I have a really great tolerance for rough seas, but some of my colleagues do not. And I remember sitting there on the first day, there was a few people next to me. And the second day, there was maybe one colleague with me. And by the third day, I was alone in the galley. And I was thinking, what kind of life experience is this? <laughs> um, but uh, but slowly, as the water settled back down and the sun came out, we were able to, to continue. Everyone wrapped it up and we were able to continue the mission. Everybody was seasick. Everyone was seasick, yeah. But. So was there ever a point that you were in danger, the, the the waves could have, I don't know, up what happens um, aboard a ship. Aboard a ship. So in that moment did not feel danger because when you go out on a research vessel, you are entirely entrusted in the safety of the captain and crew. And they were an incredible crew and they had complete control over the situation. Later, as we speak about experiences upon the ship, there was a, a second storm that came towards the third week of the trip where the ship was actually struck by lightning, <gasps> frying part of our radio communications. And at that point, there was an assessment of um, safety (laughs) that we had to move forward. So anything can happen at sea, and you do have to be prepared to take that risk when you go on these expeditions. 
Wow. So we're in the Gulf of Mexico now. Yes. And and it's bounded by Florida and Louisiana and Mississippi, Texas, Mexico, Yucatan Peninsula. So you're in this area called, was it the DeSoto Canyon and the Mississippi Canyon? Tell us about underwater what these areas are called, if, if you can. Yes, that's a great question. And we explored different um, features of the, the seafloor of the Gulf of Mexico, all the way if we steamed closer to Florida. And I actually saw the slope of where that continental shelf is, where it goes from the very deepest depths of the Gulf of Mexico back towards Florida, all the way to some of these canyons in the center. So there was not a singular feature that we, that we had um, explored. Okay, so going back to what you're after in different ways, and mm-hmm. different scientists are sort of looking at, at different specific elements of this and different animals. But part of this is asking the question, how do deep sea animals see color? And how, how they use vision and light within their environment. And so this is where bioluminescence comes in. This is the only source of light at this depth in the bathypelagic zone the midnight zone. So what is bioluminescence? Bioluminescence is the biological production of light from a chemical reaction in the tissues within animals' bodies. It's not related to heat, like light that would be radiated from the sun or from a flame. It's related to a chemical reaction or cold light. And so um, this has evolved many, many times in the natural world, and we see it most commonly in the marine environment, especially in the deep sea environment. The reason being is it's it's a featureless environment. There's nowhere to hide and no shelter for these animals. They're in what we call the pelagic or open water, drifting in the vastness of the space. And it's cold, it's high pressure, and it's extremely dark. And so if you have to find prey, if you have to find pre- avoid predators or find mates, you need to find a way to pass some communication through that environment. And it turns out um, using light or bioluminescent signals is one very effective way to live within your community in that featureless deep sea. There are some photos from the expedition, I think, where this shrimp, (laughs) it's a series of photos, and it looks like this shrimp is vomiting light or bioluminescence. And in the pictures, it almost looks like it's a substance. Yes. Isn't that an incredible video that you saw there? Yes. And so that is one of many, many functions of bioluminescence. That animal has taken the strategy of creating light and it is um, it spews that chemical reaction when it feels endangered. And so that spew is a way to startle a predator so that it could potentially escape. Um, and so that is simply just one one strategy of using bioluminescence. So the mission was to explore light and life in the deepest parts of the Gulf of Mexico. And each of our teams, we on board the ship, wanted to explore the space with an open mind and exploratorily to see what we would find. But some of us also had certain targets in mind. And, and mine was, again, looking at these crustaceans within this environment. The visual systems of these crustaceans. Exactly. You're listening to Coastline. It's a deep sea exploration with UNCW professor Lori Swikert. When we come back from this short break, we'll find out why the findings from her study were so surprising. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline.
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The deep sea is mysterious to humans in large part because it's hard to study. But as the technology for exploring ocean depths improves, we learn more about this light-deprived world. It was June of 2019 when UNCW professor Lori Swikert joined an expedition into the depths of the Gulf of Mexico. So, Professor Swikert, take us through the devices that we have available to us to collect specimens and collect data and see what is happening down there. I'd love to. I'd love to. And um, I think about if I was to ask somebody who wasn't a marine biologist, how do you begin to study the deep sea when it's so far away and so vast? What are you going to do? And perhaps you might say, put a camera down into the deep and potentially drag a net down there. And essentially that is the major ways that we're capable of figuring out what's going down um, in the deep sea. And so there were three major tools that we used. The first one was a remotely operated vehicle called the Global Explorer, which allowed us to sit in a pilot house uh, shipboard and then pilot this submersible down into the depths so that we could see with video footage the animals that were both in the water column and in the deep. This not only took video, it was capable of um, suctioning up animals on a robotic arm. And so we were able to capture slow-moving animals that came into our sites. They were able to bring specimens up. What's an example of a slow-moving animal versus a fast-moving one? Great question. A slow One of the animals we captured was a, a deep-sea jellyfish. We were able to suction that up in the arm. But a faster-moving fish along the sea floor, a little bit more difficult. Okay, when I hear suction and jellyfish, I think tentacles coming off, destruction of the species. It's it sounds violent. Am I am I off base here? I mean, that's true. There's some destruction. There would be some potential um, disturbance of the tissue in capturing them, but it is a it's a soft suction that brings them into a tank that then it becomes sealed off, and so we're able to bring up intact live animals this way. Okay, so the Global Explorer, this is our remotely operated vehicle. Somebody's driving it from the ship. Exactly. Right. And so we, um, as part of the expedition, contract a third-party company that brings both the ROV and pilots. And then they're working very closely with the scientists in the pilot house, in this wheelhouse, to, to see where to go and what actions to take. So you can envision a series of six monitors in front of us, color cameras, uh, low light, um, very um, uh, sensitive cameras that are shown in black and white, but we're able to pick up traces of bioluminescence with that camera. And then, of course, um, operation of the robotic arm to capture whatever we would like to capture. So, so the camera is showing you what's down there, and then you've got this robotic arm, and you see the jellyfish, and you're like, let's take him. So you can, so then the pilot can operate the arm to suck, to up, suck the up the jellyfish. jellyfish. Okay, and that's not all we have. But that all that was a big deal, wasn't it, in terms of getting it, it into is. the water? It is, it is. So every single time we deploy this, which was daily, we had to use a crane on board the ship to release the ROV into the water, and then we had to recover the ROV using a crane to bring it back on board. That is spearheaded by the opera- operations team on the ship, but we are there in life vests and, and hard hats alongside recovering this material, and you can imagine how difficult that would be in rough seas. Um, but we were able to do that, and, that, and the ROV... Um, 
maybe the most expensive and most complicated piece of equipment. But maybe to the chagrin of my colleagues, I may see might have been the the least of the fruitful of the three methods we used to explore really? the deep sea. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. So then you also have this thing called a medusa. Tell us about the medusa. Oh, man. This is a revolutionary piece of technology in marine biology research. Really, the, the brainchild of Dr. Edith Witter, who was on this expedition, and it was a dream of hers always to have this piece of equipment built and deployed for research. The medusa is a camera system that essentially you, you put, you can imagine a yellow box um, with a very sensitive low light camera attached to it with a rope onto it to a buoy that's floating at the surface. And what we do, it's much smaller than an ROV, but we still use equipment to deploy it into the, the Gulf of Mexico. It has a radio beacon so that we can detach it from the ship and we steam off miles away to conduct other research. And then we recover it even days later to recover that Medusa that's been passively drifting in the current to see what might have been captured on the camera. And so importantly, it's not just a passively drifting camera, but there is a bioluminescent lure on that uh, instrument in front of the camera so that we may use the natural strategies of animals in that environment to encourage them to come towards the camera so that we can see them. So the, the major difference you need to imagine here is the ROV is loud, big, lots of lights on it, being actively, it's actively tethered to the ship and it's being piloted. But then we've put out this silent drifter of a camera system that's just going to pick up anything swimming by. And you can already start to imagine the different stories those two pieces of equipment might tell. Yes. So the the ROV, the Global Explorer, mm-hmm. the the loud monster down there, mm-hmm. would that scare away some of the shyer or I don't know smarter or more sensitive animals? That's the thought. You think about that. There's been thousands or more deployments of ROVs in the Gulf of Mexico alone, looking for marine research or either for for resources, mining for resources, or looking for shipwrecks. And we've never seen some of the animals that we saw using the Medusa on this trip. And the reason we think that is is because the Medusa is a silent, dark, quiet drifter, and it's not as intimidating to a fast, smart, or nervous animal. Okay, so now you've teed this up a couple of times. What are the animals <laughs> that you saw? I'm just dying the, to tell you. I'm dying to tell on you. On the Medusa. So this quiet, drifting, bioluminescent, it's got it's got a an arm. It does. Right, it that, does. It has an arm that's out and it has an LED light ring that is mimicking the natural bioluminescence of a common prey item found in the deep sea. So there is an animal called the Atola jellyfish, the North American jellyfish. And when it is being attacked by an animal, it starts a beautiful bioluminescent um, array where it is shining blue lights in a ring around a circle over and over and over. And this is a strategy called a burglar alarm. The burglar alarm is supposed to call in an even larger predator animal to eat the animal 
that's predating on it, right? So it knows it's being attacked. It starts to do bioluminescent ring. And then a larger predator, a larger fish, let's say, comes by and eats the thing that's attacking it. So what we did, um, and do again, Dr. Edith Witter and Dr. Nathan Robinson, with this idea, deployed an LED light ring, a technological ring of lights. So we could trick animals thinking it was a jellyfish giving a burglar alarm to call in some of the biggest predatory animals of the deep. And that animal was the giant squid. Wow. So how big is a giant squid? Oh, well, a mature giant squid can be huge from the tip of its body down to the, the length of one of its tentacles, I imagine upwards of 50 feet or more. We captured live footage for the first time ever in the Gulf of Mexico of a giant squid using this medusa of a juvenile animal that was approximate, uh, about approximately 12 feet long. Wow. And it's you watch the video, which is available on Noah's website, and we can link to that in the show notes. But it doesn't take long for the squid to touch the arm and go, whoa, not what I thought it was, and shoot off into the blackness. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So um, in biology, we call this an um, an ethogram. If we're trying to understand a behavioral pattern of an animal while it's engaging in, in what it does for survival, we can build an ethogram, a repertoire of what behavior looks like. And we never had that for the predation of a giant squid. We knew giant squid lived in the Gulf of Mexico because you could find carcasses, wash up, or tails from fishermen. But we now had live footage of this predatory behavior. So you see this animal stalking the medusa, all the arms of this animal together. Um, kind of like uh, looks like an arrow, almost like a snake slithering through the water. And then when it decides to attack, all the arms open and it goes to encapsulate the lure because a squid do have a beak, which is their mouth, within their, within their body, up inside all of those arms. And they were, it was going to draw whatever the predatory animal was into its mouth. And, um, and once it realized that it wasn't a predator and it felt that it was artificial, it, it jetted out of there right away. Yeah. You're listening to Coastline. Dr. Lorian Swikert is an assistant professor of biology and marine biology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Now, on this 2019 expedition into the bathypelagic zone to study the water column and, and how uh, no light, no sunlight affects animals and, and their development, we know that animals in the deep, deep tend to be large, they grow larger than animals that are closer to the surface. Yes. Why is that? And what is that phenomenon called? Good question. So that phenomenon is called gigantism. And we see this in the deep sea environment. Uh, very quickly, it is thought because um, animals that live in this environment and in other environments have something called indeterminate growth which means that through their entire lifespan, they continually grow. And we have animals in shallow marine environments that have indeterminate growth. But in the deep sea, there are so few predators because there's so few animals generally down there that animals with indeterminate growth can continue to grow for many, many years, becoming um, extremely large than their counterparts in the, in the marine world, in the shallow marine world. So we saw, for example, um, using a trawl net, which was the third way we were able to study those animals in the deep sea. We saw giant, giant shrimp, for example, the size of my forearm um, because of this phenomenon of gigantism. Wow. So, so you have two, you have three devices. Two of them are bringing up specimens. The Medusa, just a camera, and um, 
has a an interactive feature that can lure animals to be captured on camera. But it's the the Global Explorer, the remotely operated vehicle, and the trawl net mm-hmm. that allow you to actually bring specimens up to the ship. So the trawl net, how, how, do, how do you do this? Because you have to be careful with them, and you have to kind of sort through what you're getting. So I, I, am, I imagine it's different from, say, pulling things up and dumping it out on the deck and going, all right, what do we have here? And we can throw. How, how do you do that? Exactly. So what what does that look like? This trawl net, whatever you're imagining in size, double it. Okay. So the mouth of this trawl net is um, the mouth of it is upwards of 20 feet by 20 feet wide, big square opening, and it gets pulled up with a crane. And and then the extension, the depth of the net is 100 feet long, going from this 20 by 20 foot mouth to a 6 inch by 10 inch cylinder at the bottom to capture all the animals that were, small animals that we're going to catch in the water column. Um, Why small animals? Because large, that net moves, you can imagine moving a 100 foot net through water, how slow it's moving through the water. Large animals escape, we catch all the small guys. And um, what does that look like? The entire crew comes out, we make sure that 100 feet of net is not fouled in any way. It's perfectly folded for a good deployment. And then the crane begins releasing thousands of meter of wire cable to lower this net to the depth that we're studying, okay? Everything up to 6,000 feet uh, to 10,000 feet, very, very deep depths. So you can imagine um, once that's fully deployed, the ship then begins to motor forward, dragging this net through the water for hours at a time. What are some of the other animals that you brought up or that you saw? Because this was a source of inspiration for you and led you to study the visual systems in, in shrimp. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so we we recovered this net. And I remember the first time we recovered the net. This was my first time really experiencing uh, this trawl netting in a deep sea expedition. And you bring the container up. It's been sealed at depth. Tell a computer to seal it. We bring it up. And now we have a closed container that everybody's bumbling to look at. And we get it inside a shipboard laboratory in the dark. And we pour this into a seawater table. And all of a sudden, you see this constellation of bioluminescence on the seawater table that is fascinating. And everyone's clamoring to see what animals might be in here. And so we saw a great diversity of animals. Uh, First of all, deep sea anglerfish. You might think of finding Nemo with the animal with the bioluminescent lure in front of his face. And that animal, unbelievable the blackest of black pigmentation on the body that we know to exist in nature, um, they use as a form of camouflage. That's one example. We saw completely transparent, large crustaceans, strange aliens of the deep called cystosoma and phronema. You can literally imagine aliens with Sigourney Weaver, this alien, that's what the crustaceans look like, completely transparent, Um, some as big as a water balloon in your hand, completely transparent, having evolved their form of camouflage to be invisible in this environment. And then... um, and then we saw all the constellate, like uh, some beautiful constellation of bioluminescence associated with these deep sea shrimp, these beautiful and diverse animals that was very clear to me right away that um, vision with their large eye sizes and light with their bioluminescent light organs was very important to this group. And that's what I wanted to study. And so do you remember the moment that it kind of hit you that, ooh, I need to go deeper there, it, deeper in terms of your, your study, your examination? 
Yeah, absolutely. I recognize that this was some of the richest biodiversity that I've ever experienced and that may exist in our, in our natural world, how diverse these animals are. And I wanted to ask, what is the role of vision and light in the lives of these animals? How did these animals survive in the deep? And so you studied that. And what did you learn about how their their eyes develop, these shrimp eyes? Yeah, so immediately I studied how large these the eyes of these animals were across the different species relative to their body. What that tells you is for some animals, vision is super important, and for others, it's less so. And then, and we did this across 454 specimens, 16 species. And then we start to look at patterns. Which animals had the largest eyes as it relates to the depths they're found? How deep? Um, what is the size or brightness of their bioluminescent organs and how they migrate in the environment with this phenomenon called the dial vertical migration. And we were able to then find what is it about their at those aspects of their lives in the sea that predict when vision is really important. And you thought you were going to find that, oh, the depth, for instance, at which they live has something to do with how their visual systems, their eyes grow. Can I call them eyeballs or is that not quite right? They are. Yeah, in fact, yes. They're very spherical. You can call them okay. eyeballs. So they're yes. eyeballs, like how big their eyeballs grow and how yes. they develop. You thought it would be partly at least related to how deep they live, but it wasn't that, was it? Or is it? No, it was a surprising finding. That's exactly right. It, it was less related to the depth they're found and more related to those bioluminescent light organs on their body. So it was a surprising finding where we thought that it would clearly be how far they've gotten from sunlight with depth that would make them have bigger and bigger eyes to see any last traces of sunlight in the water column. And we did see that trend, but far stronger uh, relationship to how big their eyes were, how important vision was, was the brightness of organs upon their body. For the first time revealing that these animals may be using their bioluminescence as a form of communication to each other, as opposed to what we thought their bioluminescence was for, which was a form of camouflage. So strictly as a, so in shrimp then, because we know there are other animals who use bioluminescence as a protective mechanism, but these shrimp, these deep sea shrimp with very large eyeballs, this, their bioluminescence is about communication? That's what appears to be that that's a part of the story we didn't previously understand. If and with you, whom are they communicating? It would be with each other because their eye sizes match the are related to the size of light organs of their own species. And so they need to find each other as mates so that they can procreate to spawn. And this may be the way they do this in the vastness, that they are flashing these signals into the environment that they are each other looking for. You're listening to Coastline. It's, it's an exploration of deep sea animals and shrimp eyeballs with UNCW professor Lorian Swikert still ahead. We're going to learn more about what the application is of this new understanding, but we're also going to find out why her career goals shifted from training dolphins to studying the eyes of marine animals. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. In June of 2019, Lorian Swikert joined a scientific expedition into the depths of the Gulf of Mexico. She and the other scientists wanted to find out how the animals who live so deep in the ocean that no sunlight reaches them, how they develop and how a world devoid of light shapes them. Dr. Lorian Swikert is an assistant professor of biology and marine biology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. So you just explained, Professor Swikert, that how these shrimp eyeballs develop was really surprising because you had your hypothesis about the factors that would shape the development of their eyes. And then you found out, actually, that it was something completely different. So you expected to find that their eyeballs would be shaped by the depth at which they live and some other factors. But just tell us again, for those who are just joining us, what you actually found. Great. Yes. So we expected that the importance of vision to this animal, how big their eyes were going to grow to capture light, would be governed by how deep they were found in this environment. Very shallow, lots of light. You don't need very big eyes. Very deep, there's very little light. And so if you want to see anything from sunlight, you need to have very large eyes. And we ex- and then so we tested that, and along with other factors, see what we might find. And what we, what we found was the predominant finding that the greatest predictor of eye size or how important vision is to this animal is to the brightness of the bioluminescent organs that the species uh, contain within themselves. And so this showed us that viewing the bioluminescent signals of others within their species might be more important than using their eyes for seeing that last glimmer of sunlight in the deep sea. Now, so we're saying that it's really more about communication, their need for communication with each other, with others of of their species. Yes. So obviously, mating and procreation (laughs) comes to mind. Exactly. is Is that the only reason? Why else might they communicate? I mean, would they talk about you know, what's on the agenda in school today? Or like, <laughs> what? how do you figure out shrimp communication? How do you figure out shrimp communication? I mean, the big question is in such the deep, dark vastness of the deep sea, how does anybody find anybody? Because biomass, that is the collection of the amount of biological material down there, is far lower than in shallower terrestrial environments. So it's just specks of dust spread across. So they need to find each other for a variety of reasons. We do know these animals aggregate. So they are found in groups within their own species, partially probably for protection, finding of food-like resources, and of course coming together to spawn. We know that these animals physically come together in a form of copulation to spawn as opposed to some other marine animals that may just broadcast their, their cells into the environment. So they need to find each other. They need to know that they're within their species. Perhaps they're using these bioluminescent signals to find and identify one another. Now, do these deep sea shrimp participate in the dial vertical migration? Yes. And in fact, that was one of the factors that we were seeing 
uh, testing to see if it predicted eye size in this group. And even though we it wasn't a major determinant of eye size, we know this is a major driving behavior of their lives. Um, the dial vertical migration is the largest mass migration of animals on Earth, and it happens every single night while we sleep. So what's happening is that animals that live in the deep sea stay at those deep, dark depths because there's very few predators there. But there's also very little food and few nutrients at that depth. So when darkness falls at night, the animals rise from the deep in this dial migration coming towards the surface to feed, where there's far more food available. And then when the sun comes up again, sinking back down to the deep. And so we were, we were looking if that was also involved. Wow. And you said it's the largest mass migration of animals on the planet, and it happens every night. Every single night. And that's related to the larger story of why studying shrimp, right? And so you can imagine um, there might be more charismatic animals to study from our expedition, the giant squid, the deep sea fish, right? Um, but these shrimp by far were the most abundant animals brought upon the ship because they're the most abundant life source there at the deep sea, these crustaceans in the water column, one of the most abundant. That makes them incredibly important prey for predatory animals in the ecosystem. But also through this dial vertical migration, they're driving what is called the biological carbon pump. What is that? That is a natural process that perhaps not many people know about, but it is the major way that the ocean sequesters or holds on to extra carbon that's our environment. So atmospheric carbon from carbon dioxide and also dissolved carbon from waste and nutrients that happen in the ocean. And so this dial vertical migration drives, drives the carbon downward. So in other words, it's sort of, it, Am I understanding that you're saying that the dial vertical migration is a factor then in cleaning the atmosphere above the water? That's exactly what I'm saying. Terrestrial exactly. atmosphere. And taking some of that, what we would consider, I guess, waste product and bringing it down to the bottom of the ocean? That's exactly true. And so this is a natural process. Carbon dioxide is one of uh, three major gases that compose our atmospheric gases. And, uh, and um, carbon dioxide is very important. And from our atmosphere, it dissolves into the ocean, just like any gas, like oxygen dissolves into our ocean. And then the sequence here is that photosynthetic phytoplankton or teeny tiny plants at the water surface begin to photosynthesize. They use the CO2 and they to create nutrients within their body. So they then then they store the carbon. Then these crustaceans come up from the deep in the dial vertical migration. These are the deep sea shrimp the with the giant eyeballs. And it to split hairs here, smaller crustaceans eat the phytoplankton, then my shrimp eat the, the small crustaceans, and then by bringing it back, then coming down through the dial vertical migration, they excrete their waste towards the seafloor, helping to drive nutrients and sequestered carbon down to the seafloor. Sea the, sea, the deep sea is a reservoir of carbon in our environment and is the major way to remove CO2 from our atmosphere. So these animals from the deep sea that are participating in this are helping to clean our atmosphere on a 
24-hour cycle. Absolutely. Basically. The deep sea ecosystem, the oceanic ecosystem is a major driver of our global health uh, of our environment. All that photosynthesis at the surface of phytoplankton creates our atmospheric oxygen, which we need to survive. And then the CO2 from all the waste that we have and that are from our respiring, it comes goes back into the ocean to be to sequestered in the deep sea. So when you hear marine biologists plugging the importance of conserving the ocean, it's because it is the it are it's the lungs of our survival on our planet. So then tying this together, going back to what you discovered about how shrimp eyeballs develop in the deep sea, how does that understanding then change our understanding of the deeps, of us, of why, why do folks who aren't scientists and who aren't studying the visual systems of these deep sea animals need to know this? Oh, I'm so glad to have the opportunity to tell you that. Because the bottom line is our need for resources in the deep sea is far outpacing our understanding of this natural environment. More specifically, with our understanding that light signals may be the basis by which these animals survive, procreate and survive, we now understand we need to allow light signals to be transmitted through the space. Specifically, what I said about need for resources we're using the deep sea for deep sea drilling for crude oil. We're using the deep sea for deep sea mining for minerals, metals, and other materials. And while we're doing that, we just need to be conscientious of the impact we're having on that environment. Specifically, deep sea mining requires the, the vacuuming of sediments from the seafloor, the filtration of the minerals we need, and then, um, then the expulsion of that sediment, creating large sediment pools, sometimes from the surface all the way to the seafloor. You can imagine all that particulate matter that shouldn't be in there in the water column is then attenuating those light signals or, or blocking those light signals, making it harder for these shrimp to survive. So it is really interesting how, how studying what, how big is an eyeball in a shrimp is actually connected to ecosystem health on a global scale. Yeah. You know, I, when we spoke on the phone, I asked you what the big kahuna, all these really bad puns <laughs> happening here. Um, what, what kind of the big goal is for you as a scientist in your career? And you thought about it for a second. And then you said to me, well, actually, you know, it's just chipping away at each piece your, your ultimate goal, to, you said, to find the meritorious questions, address them, and share that wonder with the world, which I thought was just an incredibly eloquent way of, of expressing it. But you were saying it's like chipping away at a slab of marble and each study is a chip. And then at the end of your career, you get to look at what you've created. Where does this chip of the understanding a little bit more about the development of deep sea shrimp eyeballs. Where does that lead you next? That leads me into understanding more about bioluminescence in this environment. On a cell and molecular level, how bioluminescence is created, how it is behaviorally used by this animal, and then its role on a community level scale, tying unity between these organisms in the environment, is a very complex question that requires study. And, and then through studies like this, to see how it's ultimately connected to better understanding that environment, um, and then what that might mean for our ecosystem is, is incredibly rewarding. But just like uh, you had mentioned about what I said, it's not, you don't start with that foresight of what the end goal is. It's more going in with, with raw curiosity and then seeing the products that come on the other side of that. 
Yeah. And you actually, you had, you were always interested in STEM, you said, in the science, mm-hmm. technology, engineering, and math. And mm-hmm. you, we could spend an entire hour just talking about that and what that was like for you. But you, you knew you wanted to get into science and you knew you were interested in marine animals. So you said, I'll be a dolphin trainer and uh, get a degree in psychology. <laughs> what? Uh, so how, why, is human psychology that similar to dolphins? <laughs> <laughs> that is a great, that's a great question. Yeah, that's exactly my origin story is like that of many marine biologists. They had formative experiences in their youth, an education that valued science, that valued marine research, the marine biology, and had experiences tied into that learning experience. So when I was younger, I um, went fishing with family, had an aunt and uncle that would bring me beachcombing or on sea turtle walks. Um, I mean, I had these incredible experiences. And then, and then of course, I fell in love with how charismatic marine mammals are. At SeaWorld Adventure Park, going, seeing these animals, having that experience, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So the preferred degree to work with captive marine animals or marine mammals specifically um, is a psychology degree. So I sought a psychology degree in Florida to be close to those marine mammals. And when I was pursuing that psychology degree, I learned more about sensory systems, nervous systems, visual systems. And I, I realized I wanted to tie my love of neurobiology with my love of marine biology and then go into academia. And so you, for your doctoral thesis, you studied the visual systems of the Atlantic tarpon? Yes, the tarpon, the six-foot, seven-foot silver king we find right over on our coasts here. Why this fish? Why this fish? Yeah. Why Why did you want to get into the visual systems, the eyes of this fish, how it sees? Well, I might tell somebody to meet on the street because because we recognize what an important fishery this is recreationally to capture these seven-foot fish, what that means for our, our fishing economy and what that means for our quality of life as anglers. But as I would tell a colleague in the lab, is because they actually have the most complex color vision of any backbone animal on the planet. Where we see the great diversity of color in our environment in three channels, tarpon see color in five channels, seeing everything from ultraviolet light through the red at very very high dimension, some of the most complex color vision on the planet, making it a worthy study system. And you said to me that part of the reason for that is that we could perhaps develop cameras that have more uh, kind of visual ability when it comes to color or more refined seeing. Does that really matter or is this just curious for you? Like, do you have to find practical applications to justify your curiosity or can you just chase your curiosity as a scientist? That's a very provocative question. And there certainly will be those who would say that learning for the sake of learning is a worthy endeavor. At the same time, this is frequently taxpayers' money that's funding this research. And uh, the stakeholders is everybody here on this planet on what the science is that they're investing their their resources into. I think everybody, and myself included, have the responsibility to use some of that creativity to think about practical applications of this work. It is critically important that I address my work open-ended without trying to drive an application for my own work. Because it being open-ended 
you can get far greater diversity of products than if I was trying to develop, let's say, a hyperspectral or hypercolor sensitive camera from studying tarpon vision. But I do have a responsibility to tell the person next to me that that's potentially one technological application we might get. And one tying in just very briefly, what I found one of the most inspiring stories that continues to inspire my career was actually Nobel Prize winner Dr. Roger Dien and Martin Chalfie and colleagues, that they were just interested interested in studying the bioluminescence of the North American jellyfish, that atoll jellyfish, just to understand what chemistry is needed to make bioluminescence. From the that biological research, we discovered green fluorescent protein. A protein in the presence of calcium glows green. That revolutionized biomedical science. We now use that green fluorescent protein in all kinds of experiments to try to find other proteins within any tissue, and it will fluoresce green so we can find it under a microscope. By studying bioluminescence in a jellyfish, changed biotechnology forever. And I can only dream to do that in my own, my own work. And in that moment, other people may have been thinking, this is a very niche sort of interesting curiosity, but this kicked open the door to a whole range of applications. Absolutely. In science. Yes. And I knew I was going to be mad at the end of this because <laughs> we are out of time. That's this edition of Coastline. Professor Swigert, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. This was a privilege and I really appreciate your time. Thanks also to the UNCW Department of Biology and Marine Biology for lending us her for the day. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.